Well, good morning, New City South Park, and good morning to our Matthews campus as well. Great to have all of you here for worship today. And I've missed you the last couple of weeks, so it's great to be back with you. Um, it's been a great time to uh, be refreshed with our family and also to prepare for an exciting fall of ministry here at New City. We're starting a series on August 15th, you can mark it down, on the book of Daniel. And we'll be walking through his life, and the series is called Following God No Matter What. And that'll make more sense to you as we unpack his story and looking forward to that. have had some time to prepare. We've got two more messages. If you've uh, been attending New City and following with us uh, this spring and summer, we've been walking through the parables in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've got two more to go, uh, August 1st and 8th. And Pastor Rodney and myself will be uh, preaching those uh, last two parables in the Gospel of Matthew. So come back and, and join us. If you're new to New City, Hopefully this won't be your, your last time. You'll come back and join us for that and, and then the kickoff uh, to the book of Daniel. But today, I'm very excited to welcome uh, one of my friends uh, and mentors, Dale Hummel. Uh, Dale is the pastor of Wooddale Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Any Minneapolis folks in here, Minnesota folks? Um, yeah, uh, Wooddale is a great legacy church there. Dale's been there for eight years, but been pastoring for over 30. And our stories connected when he was in Chicago. And uh, Jen and I were at a decision point, kind of an um, intersection in our lives, of trying to figure out and discern God's calling, next assignment in ministry, and um, connected with Dale and almost moved to Chicago. And I'll never forget, uh, Jen and I were at dinner with Dale here in Charlotte, and um, we were thinking about, you know, should we, should we uh, plant a church here? Um, or, you know, should we, should we join Dell's team, which we were really keen to do? And Dale asked us a question. Uh, the question was, which one requires the most faith? And maybe you're at an intersection in your life right now where you need to wrestle with that question. And uh, for us, uh, we stayed and planted what is now the Matthews campus. And you know the, the, the rest of the story. Uh, we did a sermon series back in January here uh, called How to Grow Your Faith. And if you're looking to kind of supplement the series we're doing now and uh, looking for another podcast to listen to during the week, go, go back and listen to that. We talked about what does the scripture say about how we grow our faith. And one of those weeks um, I preached on providential relationships. Um, and what we talked about that in that series is, or in that message is that God puts people in your story to help you to know more of his story. And that's the way I want to introduce Dale today. He is a friend and mentor, but he's a providential relationship that I'm convinced God put into our story to help us to know more of his story and continues to. So would you give a, a warm New City welcome to Pastor Dale Hummel? Thank you. Thank you, I wish I had never asked that question. <laughs> I could use Chris on my team. But... God has uniquely gifted and called him, and uh, I find it a privilege to be able to know Chris and Jen, their family. Um, I thank God for him. I uh, know him to be a very good organizational leader. Uh, when we were talking to him years ago, he helped us out with some organizational kinds of things we were working through, uh, but he's also a fine communicator of God's word. Not only that, but uh, if you have been reading the headlines, you know that uh, we're in a leadership crisis in our nation and also in the church. It seems like every week I read about uh, another Christian leader who has fallen uh, ethically or morally or just, you know, 
quit because they just can't handle it anymore. And it's hard to find good and godly leaders, and you have one in Chris and Jen, and I want to encourage you to pray for them. I have a prayer team at Wooddale that prays for me on my wife, Marsha, on a very regular basis. And I encourage you. I know you do, but just, just do that. He needs that. You need that. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for a body of believers that is serious about God and serious about following him in mission and serving him here near and far, making a difference. And uh, your best years are still to come. What God wants to do in and through your lives. I also have a newfound love for North Carolina. I really like North Carolina a lot. Um, and, and that's because my two uh, grandkids moved here to North Carolina. Uh, they brought their parents with them, of course. Uh, my son and uh, uh, his wife, my daughter-in-law, moved to Statesville with our grandsons who are 12 and 10. Uh, ben, my son, is the head of the uh, uh, Christian, uh, Statesville Christian School there. So that's what brought us into the area. And uh, I think they're actually with us today. My wife, Marsha, why don't you guys at least wave back there so they know I'm married and have a beautiful wife and kids. So they're, uh, they're here as well. I, I want to talk to you about um, the issue of forgiveness today. And it's not because Chris said, hey, would you talk about forgiveness? It's just something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, in, in my life and, and in the life of, of the church. And I think for all the talk we do as Christians about forgiveness, we still struggle to understand it and experience it. To me, forgiveness is like a coin with two sides. And there are two challenges that come with forgiveness. The, the first side is being able to accept and forgive ourselves. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to forgive myself. I know myself really well. And maybe you struggle with that as well. In fact, I have found that the more serious you are as a believer, as a follower, as one who truly wants to know and please God, you tend to struggle even more with accepting forgiveness in your own life. I'm reminded of a, a young couple that um, we're close to who had a great family going until she had an affair. And you can imagine the pain and the hurt that caused not only their immediate family, but the extended family and all who knew them. And uh, they're still dealing with the repercussions of that. And every time I see her, which isn't often, but when I do see her, I, I just sense a, a hollowness in her. I sense a, a weight that she's carrying, this shame, this guilt, and, you know, can I honestly be forgiven for what I did, and the price that it's brought, and the cost that's involved with it. I think about a woman who's been a Christian for many years, and uh, Bible teacher, and you would never think that she would be struggling with forgiveness, but about a year or so ago when I, I was preaching and I, and I mentioned the issue of abortion and God's forgiveness and God's grace, she came up afterwards and she looked at me and she said, you know, I had an abortion when I was much younger. 
She says, do you really think that God can forgive me? So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is forgiving others, which is part of our calling, part of our responsibility. We are to forgive those who hurt and offend us. And I go back to that young couple I was telling you about, and I think about the husband and how hard a time he's having years later now to forgive and let go and move on with the marriage because she repented and wants to make things work. And he keeps bringing it up in front of her, shaming her over and over and over again. You know, if if we're going to be honest, some of us are pound of flesh kind of people, right? You hurt me and I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to require a pound of your flesh. In other words, I want to make sure you hurt too. You feel that hurt before I'll forgive you. So two problems when it comes to forgiveness. And maybe you feel like you're on one side or the other of that coin, having a hard time believing that God has forgiven you. There are things that you've said and done and thought in your life that maybe nobody else knows about, but honestly, sincerely, there are moments in your life where you just wonder, how can God forgive me? And sometimes, you know, when that happens, we, we relapse. We just figure out God can't forgive us, and we go back into a life of sin again. Or maybe you're carrying around a grudge towards somebody. It could be a family member. It could be somebody in the church. It could be somebody at work. You're just having a hard time letting it go and, and forgiving them because they didn't, haven't necessarily said they're even sorry or repentant. And that's why the story that we're going to look at briefly today is so important to us because it deals with both sides of this issue. I don't think there's anybody in the scriptures who better models and helps us understand the issue of forgiveness like Joseph does. And I want to pick up the end of the story and the last chapter, Genesis chapter 50. Jacob has just died, Joseph's father. And when Joseph finds out, he shows up and he, he just throws himself over his father and he weeps his father's death. And then he calls in the physicians. Remember, Joseph by now is the second most powerful man in the world, a vizier to Pharaoh. He's like the vice president of Egypt. And he tells the physicians to embalm the body, which is about a 40-day process. And after the body was embalmed, then he sought permission from Pharaoh to take his father back to Canaan to the family vault, the cave in Machpelah where the relatives were, were buried. And so Pharaoh says, yes, you can go. And so Joseph leaves with his family and kids, and his brothers leave with their family and kids, and Pharaoh sends along a delegation of some of the highest officials in Egypt as well as some of the senior members of his family. It's a huge entourage that make their way into Canaan to say goodbye to Jacob and to stick the body there in the cave. And Pharaoh sends all these officials and sends all these family members not because of his great respect for Jacob but because of his love and respect for Joseph. Joseph was like a savior 
to Egypt. After the morning was over and the body had been put away and things were done, Joseph's brothers, who were scallywags to say the least, they were a bad bunch of boys, got together and talked about how concerned they were what might happen now that dad was out of the way. What's Joseph going to do to us? I want to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. Genesis 50 verse 15. It says, but now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants, the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and he wept. Six times the narrative of Joseph, you'll hear about him weeping. The question is, why is he weeping when he gets this message from his brothers? We'll answer that in just a moment. It says in verse, next verse there, it says, Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid of me. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Now, why does Joseph weep when he gets the message from his brothers? I think, and other Bible teachers and scholars have said this as well, I think Joseph knew that his father never said that. I think Joseph knew that his brothers had made this up, that it was a lie. Now, I think he weeps over the fact that they've, they've lied to him about his dad. You see, Joseph, I believe, knew that if Jacob had a concern like that, he would have said it directly to Joseph before he died. Joseph and Jacob had a very unique and special relationship even after, even after Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. It was like a mutual understanding that they had of each other, that God had been at work in each other's lives. You know the story of Jacob. He was a deceiver. That's how he did life. He was a trickster. He stole and deceived with the help of his mother the birthright from his brother Esau. And God allowed Jacob to go through quite a gauntlet of trials and difficulties to finally bring him to that 32nd chapter of Genesis, one of the most mysterious chapters in the Bible where Jacob has a wrestling match with God. And at the end of the match, the Lord touches his hip, it becomes dislocated, and for the rest of his life, Jacob walks with a what? He walks with a limp. And that physical limp is a spiritual reminder that Jacob has finally gotten to the place in his life where he no longer depends on his deception, he depends on God. He's now clinging to God. Joseph also had a limp in his life. 
You see, God allowed Joseph to go into slavery and to experience all the trials that he did, that gauntlet of trials, in order to disconnect Joseph from his dependence on his earthly father and bring him to a place where there's absolute dependence on his heavenly father. At the end of that story, Joseph has a limp. It's not a physical limp, it's an emotional limp. You read the story of Joseph, he cries a lot, and it's not because he's weak. He's a courageous, brave, strong man, but there's a a breaking in his spirit. There's a tenderness there. You read the early part of Joseph's life, he was an arrogant young man, kind of cocky. And every time he put on that beautiful coat that, remember, his father made for him, it was like a glowing neon sign that said, look at me, I'm father's favorite. It's all about me. And I've had these great dreams, and someday I'm going to rule over you guys. And when you guys blow it, I tell dad. And so Joseph had to kind of lose that arrogance, lose that pride, and become dependent on God. I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but Jesus has a limp as well. Not just Jacob, not just Joseph, but Jesus also had to learn obedience, dependence on the Father. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, talks about that. He had to learn obedience, not because he was disobedient, but because he had never suffered, he had never died before. He was going to have to suffer and he was going to have to die for you and me. And the limp are the scars in his hands and his feet. Which are an eternal reminder. When you and I see the Lord, we'll see those scars. They're an eternal reminder of his absolute dependence on the Father. Carry out the will of God, your salvation and mine. Do you have a limp in your life? I do. It took me a while to come to own it and accept it, but there's some things that have happened in my life that have served to teach me to depend more on God than I would otherwise. So maybe in your life right now, God is doing something to create greater dependence on Him. I I think this whole year of COVID and the social and political unrest and upheaval that we've experienced in our nation has been used to shake up God's church, to bring us back into dependence on Him and not on our programs and not on our personalities, not on our buildings and our facilities and our organization, but on Him. Now, Joseph knew, I think, that his dad never said that. And he wept when he got the words. And I think one of the reasons why Joseph wept when he heard those words is because what it communicated to him was that his brothers didn't fully trust his love, his mercy, and his kindness. That somehow they thought that what they had done to him, their sin, was greater than his grace. You know, God weeps for you and me. Do you know that? Tim Keller says, unlike any other religion, only our religion has a God who weeps. 
And oftentimes he weeps over the very same thing. That somehow we don't trust his love, his mercy, his kindness. And somehow we think that our sin, what we did, what we said, what we thought, what we repeated over and over again, is somehow greater than his grace. And it is not. It is not. I kind of understand a little bit about how the brothers must have felt if I put myself in their their shoes. Maybe you do too. And these guys were bad guys. They hated their brother with a murderous kind of hatred. If you go back and look at their lives, over in chapter 42, there's this little clarifying moment when the brothers are talking to themselves. And it says in verse 21, we clearly are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish. And he pleaded with us for his life. And we would not listen. Can you imagine having brothers, sisters like that? You're pleading for your life. And they won't listen to you. I, I tell you how callous these guys are. First they're going to kill him. Then they're going to leave him in a pit to die. And then they saw some slave traders come. And then the brother Judah spoke up. He said, you know what? Let's not have the blood on our hands. Let's sell him. They sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. Sent him off in chains to Egypt with Ishmaelite traders. Then they took his beautiful coat. They tore it up, killed a young goat, dipped it in the blood, went home and showed it to their father and acted as though they had stumbled across it someplace. And oh my, look at this. Here is the coat of your son, not our brother, but your son. Some wild animal must have attacked him and eaten him. And poor Jacob fell to pieces when his favorite son, in his mind, had been attacked and killed by some wild beast. And all he had left was the bloodstained threads and pieces of that coat that he had made for him. I mean, how cruel can you be to play a trick like that on your dad. These were evil guys. How do you forgive guys like that that do something like that to you? And of course, we know what happened to Joseph. We know he went into Potiphar's home. We know that he rose in ranks as a master slave of the home. And then we know that Potiphar's wife tried to get him to sleep with her. He refused. She accused him of rape. Potiphar threw him into a prison. He's put in charge of the prison. He helps a butler and the baker out by interpreting their dreams. He says to the butler, remember me, the wine taster, remember me when you get out. And one of the saddest verses in the whole story of Joseph's narrative is that that wine taster, the butler, forgot all about Joseph. He stays in prison a couple more years. Until finally Pharaoh has his dreams, Joseph interprets those dreams, and he's elevated to the second most powerful man in Egypt. Finally, he's been vindicated. And there's this famine that he prophesied would happen in the land. And the famine spreads all the way up into Canaan. It affects his brothers and his father. And so Jacob sends the brothers to Egypt and says, go buy us some food or we're going to starve to death. And when they came into Egypt, whose path did they cross? The path of Joseph. And they did not recognize him, which we can understand why. He looked and dressed like an Egyptian. He spoke like an Egyptian. 
as far as they're concerned, baby brother's dead, gone, it's 20 years later. They have no thought about him. But Joseph recognizes them. If you were Joseph, what would you do? 11 pounds of flesh? Get even with these brothers? He puts them through a gauntlet. If you know the story, we'll review it very quickly and briefly. But he doesn't put them through a gauntlet to take revenge on them. He puts them through a gauntlet to break them. To teach them what his father learned and what he learned and what we must all learn. Dependence on God. So he accuses them of being spies. And remember, he takes Simeon and he throws Simeon into the prison. He says, look, I'm not going to believe you guys are who you are unless you go back home and bring your youngest brother, this Benjamin that you told me about, and show him and produce him right here. So he sends him packing home with the grain and the money. Doesn't even take the money from them. Finally, they run out of the food again and they tell Jacob, we've got to go back. Judah says, look, I, if we don't take Benjamin, we're not going to get Simeon back. We're all going to starve to death. Jacob finally says, fine, take, take Benjamin. I've lost one son. I'm probably going to lose another one. And they show up in town and Joseph sees Benjamin and he's moved in his heart. He kind of holds it together. He pulls Simeon out of the prison. He says, here, I agree with you. You're not spies. Here's your food. Here's your brother. Go home. But he tells his assistant, he says, I want you to take my favorite silver cup and stick it in Benjamin's bag. Wait till they get out of town and do a traffic stop and accuse them of stealing my favorite silver cup. And when you find it in Benjamin's bag, bring him back. So the guys are headed out of town and there's a traffic stop that happens. And as a result of that, they are accused of having stolen Joseph's favorite cup. They respond to him in chapter 44 and verse 7. They say, what are you talking about? The brothers responded, we are your servants. and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way to the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from our, your master's house? If you find this cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. Can you imagine? The look on their faces when Benjamin's sack was opened and that silver cup was found. It was a defining moment in the lives of the brothers and especially in the life of Judah. What are they going to do? Well, they all come back and they throw themselves down in front of Joseph and they say, look, we will be your slaves. Take all of us. We'll all be your slaves. And Joseph says, no. You guys go home. I'm only going to take it out on the young one, Benjamin. He'll stay with me. He'll be my slave. He's the one that stole it. Now, at this point, if the brothers' hearts have not changed, given what they did with Joseph, you can imagine what they would do. You can imagine Judah speaking up once again and saying, yep, you're right. Just like his other brother that disappeared one day. That whole line, that whole mom, that are a bunch of troublemakers. You can keep him. And you can imagine him coming home and saying to the father, look, no Benjamin. You know your son's a thief? He tried to steal the vice president's favorite silver cup. 
Man, I don't know, Pops, how you can, how you can deal with that, but that's just, that's just the way it goes. Meantime, we've got plenty of food now we can have. You can imagine Judah saying something like that, given the way he treated Joseph. But instead, we hear, we hear an entirely different commentary coming out of Judah. And I want to read it for you. So you come back to the text with me. And he says in chapter 44, verse 30, this is Judah speaking, And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that greeting white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the shame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Do you see the difference? When it came to Joseph, he didn't care. He didn't care the anguish that it caused his father. But he's gone through a gauntlet. There's a brokenness that's happened in Judah's life. And Judah says, I'm willing to trade my life for my younger brother's life. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's about my father. And the response that Joseph has to that is captured in chapter 45, verse 2. It says, then Joseph broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. Verse 4, it says, please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. I was sent here by God ahead of you to preserve your lives. In verse 9, he says, now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me a master over all the land of Egypt, so come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can hear, where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all your animals will starve. Then you come down to verse 14. Weeping. See, he just is weeping all the time, right? There's a brokenness there. Weeping with joy. Not with anger, not with vengeance. Weeping with joy. He embraced Benjamin and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, he began talking freely with them. Now do you understand in chapter 50 why he weeps when he gets this message from them? Hey, Dad told us to tell you not to get even with us. There he's weeping because they don't trust his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness. Somehow they think that what they've done is greater than the grace that he's shown. And as I said when we started, 
God grieves the same way over you and me. When we don't recognize that his grace is greater than our sin. When we don't trust his mercy and his forgiveness and his kindness. Talking about Joseph weeping, you know, Jesus wept too. He wept when he looked over Jerusalem and saw the rebellion that was there and how they had time and time again forsaken God and how they were going to be judged. He wept over the rebellious heart. And I just think about how Christ must weep over our nation these days. How he must weep over his church. He's done so much. And yet we're so divided. We're divided over masks and vaccines and politicians and politics. And it's like we've lost track of who he is and what he did for us. I think of John chapter 11 when Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Why does he weep? Because he sees the consequences of death, what it does to us. I think of Jesus weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. He must have wept there as he agonized and knew the suffering he was going to go through in order to save us. And I think, does he weep today when he sees us who've been forgiven so much, continuing to sin, compromising our values and our lives? Does he weep when he sees how we treat each other as Christians when he's done so much to change our lives. I don't want to cause Christ to weep over me with sadness. I want Christ to have tears of joy over my life because I'm so thankful for who he is and what he's done. Is there something that's happened in your life that you somehow have become convinced is greater than God's grace. That's a lie from the enemy. Is there something that you just have convinced yourself that you can't be forgiven for? That's a lie of the enemy. Stop listening to the accuser. Accept what he's done for you. But of course, the other side of the coin is what if you are the one who's been hurt and offended. This interests me in the text when Joseph is talking to his brothers there at the end of chapter 50. And he tells them, yes, you did some pretty bad things to me. It's not like he just goes, ah, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. That's not what God ever asks us to do, is to look at people who hurt us and say, ah, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But look what he says to them. He says, am I God that I can punish you? He says, you know what? That whole business, that's up to God. He'll deal with it. The Bible makes that clear in the book of Romans. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. As far as this concerns you and me, we are to do good toward others. God will settle the score someday. And that frees me up from having to hold a grudge or a vendetta toward anybody. God will take care of all that. What it frees me up to do then is to offer forgiveness. Now, people can refuse it. They can say no to it. They can walk all over it like they do to God's love and God's forgiveness. But that's between them and God. I don't have to carry that pound of flesh attitude around. I get to be like Christ. 
And when they say, thank you, I receive that forgiveness, I repent, we should rejoice. You know, I never thought about this before. But the tears of Joseph over the repentance of his brothers reminds me of the tears of the father when the prodigal son comes home. God's grace, which is greater than our sin. Three things quickly. One, I know there's not a lot these days to rejoice about in this world. But could I challenge you to begin to rejoice every day over God's mercy, kindness, and forgiveness to you? Number two, if you're in a habit of sin right now, why don't you give it up and ask and receive God's forgiveness? Why on earth would you and I choose to rebel against God when he's done so much for us? Confess it. Receive his forgiveness. And number three, forgive those who sinned against you that they might know the grace of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your remedy to the problem of forgiveness. You have forgiven us our sins and you've given us capacity because of what you've done for us to be able to forgive others. Lord, we can't give away what we've not experienced. And so I pray that you remind us of just how precious you've been to us, how you have blessed us. And may we live out of that grace and bring glory and honor to you. Thank you for this great church, this pastor and these leaders. Anoint them, Lord, for a powerful future in the days to come to spread this news of love and grace and forgiveness to Charlotte and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.